I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have the strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. Welcome to Monarchcast, a podcast on monarchy. I think it speaks for itself. I'm Claire. I'm Allie. And welcome to our series on Queen Elizabeth II. Um, I don't know if you heard our intro, and if you didn't, we highly recommend that you go listen to that episode. It gives you an idea of what we're all about here. But um, we're going to be doing a three-part series on the woman herself, Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, we're finally getting into the, well, I don't want to say the meat of the woman, that sounds really, really yeah, weird, yeah, uh, but. Very unqueenly. Yeah, yeah, we're getting into the life of Queen Elizabeth, we'll say that. All right, well, should we, should we do, you know, I think in the last episode, we maybe said some things that were incorrect. <laughs> uh, I think we definitely said some things that were incorrect, as is bound to happen. There were certainly some as, things we were concerned or incorrect and I think we should put the disclaimer out there now we're not historians we're not pretending to be historians we're not even pretending to be any kind of authority on our subject matter we're just talking about this as two people who are interested and have a lot to say yes and while we do research we forget things (laughs) Mm -hmm. do you want to do what are we calling this our royal oops yeah royal oops I think it's a good way to put it all right what have you got well so first of all I was really excited to find out that I actually didn't mix up my Ireland's so that was happy um but I did badly mix up all the Charles's although in my defense there are now there have been three throughout history and it's like if you're if you're not brushed up it's kind of hard to keep up with it so um charles the first is the one who lost his head okay so i think i said i might have said charles the second or the third i don't remember but it was charles the first and then charles the second actually when he ruled he was like a beloved king and well liked um and or at least he wasn't disliked to the point where they were going to cut off his head oh bonus and then yeah and then charles the third was actually Charles Stuart, who never actually ruled, but he was the considered the um, Jacobite pretender to the throne. Bonnie Prince Charles. So he's the one. Yes, about? exactly. Okay. Yep. So that, that's my he, Outlander he, reference for the day. Yeah, exactly. He's the Charles of Outlander. Got um, it. So he never actually officially ended up on the throne. So um, it doesn't really answer the question of why Prince Charles might take George as his regnal title but um I think I've corrected the record (laughs) it's good enough for us 
Well, uh, moving on to more fun items. Um, since we are talking about the royal family, I think they've been in the news a lot lately. I thought it might be fun to cover a little bit of royal gossip. <gasps> what have you heard? Well, so this is actually related to our subject matter today. But um, Queen Elizabeth went to London Fashion Week. Oh, I did read this. Did you see this? This is actually pretty yeah. incredible. I wanted to talk about this because the pictures, and if you haven't seen these pictures, you have to go out there and look at them. I mean, it looks, she's sitting next to Anna Winter, which is hilarious. And she just looks so queenly watching the most bizarre. She looks like herself. That's what's crazy. Yes. She looks exactly the same as she always does. Like no nod to Fashion Week, no attempt nope. to like be trendy or, you know, anything. It's just like Queen Elizabeth wearing her normal clothes. And and the <laughs> one of the models had like, it looked like a robot, had a motorcycle helmet on and some crazy dress. And you can only imagine what the woman was thinking. Um, but it was really interesting because she was there to present an award. And I don't remember what the award was called, but it was a Queen Elizabeth II Fashion Award. Um, and so the show she was at was the designer who was receiving the award. And I also don't know what the criteria was exactly, but I don't know that she necessarily picked the winner herself. Because if you saw the dresses coming down this runway... It's not anything she would ever oh, touch. Well, of <laughs> um, course she didn't. She's just lending her name to this award. But but I thought it was really, really interesting. You know, it's something that we're going to touch on is this modernization of the monarchy and to have the monarch herself sitting front row at Fashion Week in London is kind of a big deal. Um, and I'm sure the security was insane. Um, and I'm sure all yeah. the models I mean, I don't think that's something fall. that she's ever done before no I think she's the first monarch to attend fashion week although in to be fair there may not have been a fashion week before she took the throne because she's been on so long but um it was definitely a big deal so I thought we should mention that because I was looking at those pictures and thinking oh my gosh we have to talk about this on the podcast Queen Elizabeth is sitting next to the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine and I think that's her title honestly I don't read Vogue so I, I can't comment any further but it's kind of a big deal Miranda Priestley herself. I know. I was just to say she's sitting next to the devil in Prada. So, <laughs> so that was really interesting. Um, that's all the royal gas, all the hot gas I got for you today. But I just thought we had to talk about that. So anyway, Queen Elizabeth II. This is the perfect segue to our subject matter since she's the woman we've been talking about for five minutes. Um, but like we mentioned, she's such a fascinating lady um she's been on the throne for so long um I think it was 2012 she celebrated her diamond jubilee which is uh what do we say 60 years on the throne that's 60 60 yeah. and which then, now puts her at two years more than Victoria oh Victoria didn't get to 60 she got to 64 okay so, but now it's 2018. So. Right, right. So in 2017, she actually celebrated her Sapphire Jubilee, which is 65 years. And I don't know if they don't celebrate it. Uh, yeah, that would make sense. No, Every I, five, yeah, five years past was Sapphire. I yeah, I don't think they did like a whole like thing for it, though. It certainly wasn't on on par with the Diamond Jubilee, certainly. No, and also I think it takes like – 
five years to plan these things. So they're not doing it, you know, every five years. So I think 70 is platinum and they'll probably do something for that. I would imagine since she'd be the only one in history. Yeah. 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 I, I, I bet that would be quite a crazy celebration, but that would take place in 2022. Um, if, if it does. So, and we're, we're not going to go any further on speculation there. I don't think, I don't think anybody wants to speculate when, um, the queen might pass on, but, uh, very interesting that she's gotten so far in her reign, but as a result, we cannot possibly talk about her in one episode. It's just not possible. So what we've done, and we mentioned it in our last episode is we're going to break this up into three. So we're going to be talking about today, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and really what we're going to be focusing on is the ascension of Queen Elizabeth to the throne of England. Um, It was a really big deal for the country. It was a really big deal for her personally, and she's been there ever since, which I think she's just constantly breaking new ground in that role, so there's a lot to talk about there on what that means. And then next time we'll be talking about the 80s and the 90s with a focus on the increased scrutiny on the monarchy and sort of modernization that was required as a coping mechanism. And then, and then we're going to talk about the millennium and what it's been like for her as she sits on the throne longer than any other monarch before her. And what does that mean? And how do you, how do you, with the new millennium, the focus was on modernization and this brand new beginning. And how do you, usher in an ancient uh, institution with you and do it in a way that's still relevant. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about the timing of that, of the new millennium and all those questions, is it also coincides with, you know, the increasingly important questions of succession and how next generations are going to deal with the same questions. And that's such an interesting question too because and we, we'll save this for the podcast but I just want to throw this out there so we can remember to talk about it but I think this might be the only job on earth where someone is going to come behind you you know who it is and they can't do that until you die and how do you prepare someone especially someone that you probably love given that they're your child um, how do you prepare them to take over and to prepare for your death and they can't meet their destiny until you're you're gone. Um, I think I think there's a lot to unpack there, but we'll save that for another day. And how do you look at someone every day and realize that like they only reach their full potential when you die? Well, I imagine it's probably pretty difficult. Um, yeah, I, I, I've not been in that situation, obviously, but I think I I would imagine it's not an easy relationship to navigate. Um, across all uh, areas of your life and um, we'll talk about that a little bit but you know when Elizabeth took the throne she was a young mother and um, I think her relationship with Charles probably was greatly affected by the idea that her father died pretty young and the question was okay well that means I don't know how long I'm going to be on this earth and here's this child who I have to prepare for life but also for my life and I think that that's that's a really difficult position to be in um when you're in your 20s and you're just not prepared for that um so we can we can start there um I thought I'd just do like a quick overview of the historical context and 
the events that happened um, when she took the throne. So basically, picture history, go back, go back post-World War II. Um, World War II severely changed the face of Europe. Um, England was bombed out by the Germans. Um, they suffered a lot of damage. The economy suffered a lot of damage across all of Europe. Um, and it really wasn't until those post-war years that they started to rebuild. And we can talk about it now. It seems so quick. But back then, at the end of the war, I mean, they still had streets full of rubble. And um, I think even, was it Buckingham Palace was bombed? And so um, there was a lot to clean up, not just physically, but also emotionally and from a societal perspective. And that is the world that we find ourselves in when Queen Elizabeth took the throne. Um, she, at the time, was a very young woman. Um, she was born in 1926 during the reign of King George V, who was her grandfather. Um, her, and her father was the Duke of York, and that's really important because that means that he was the second son of the king, and he was not expected to take the throne. Um, when she was born, she was third in line to the throne behind her father, the Duke of York and Edward, Prince of Wales. Um, at the time, the Prince of Wales was still pretty young and it was expected he was going to marry and have children of his own so that when he took the throne, he would have heirs and Elizabeth and her siblings were never expected to be in line for the throne in any kind of way where they'd be expected to one day take it. What's interesting about that is that Edward was not the man that everybody hoped that he would be. So um, her grandfather died in 1936, and she was nine years old. And at that time, she was second in line behind her father because the Prince of Wales still didn't have any children. Um, and then it, what it turned out is he had uh, quite an interesting playboy lifestyle. He had several unsuitable girlfriends the uh, most important of which was uh, Wallace Simpson. So we may do a series on this, so I'm not going to get into the weeds, but um, essentially what happened was he wanted to marry Wallace Simpson and she was deemed unsuitable for a host of reasons. Um, primarily, she was twice divorced. I don't, yeah. she was at, at least divorced at least once, and that doesn't, it's one time too many. And then she was also an American and I believe she was also an actress. So all of those things were deemed no-nos, uh, just completely inappropriate. And um, the thought of him marrying her would have caused a constitutional crisis. So he abdicated instead of giving her up. Um, he just decided, you know what? None of this is for me. I'm not going to do it. My brother can take over. Well, it was kind of a big deal for his brother because you have a man who didn't expect to take the throne He's hoping his brother is going to do his best, step up, rise to the occasion, and instead he says, you know what, I quit. Um, so what happened there is it makes Elizabeth the heir apparent to the throne. Now, what's interesting about that is that Elizabeth was the first child of her parents, and then she had a sister, Margaret, who was born, I believe, four years after her. But at the time, there was a possibility that her parents could have more children, and if they had had a boy, then he would have taken the throne. Um, and I, I think that's really interesting, you know, the concept of that. She's the oldest. She's there. She's 
once it's clear she's going to become queen, they start preparing her for the role. But if a little brother came along, they'd just say, oh, you know what? Never mind. We've got a boy. We're going to let we're going to let him do it. Well, and that's the interesting distinction that I think now is irrelevant. But they used to make between heir apparent and heir presumptive where uh, she was the heir apparent because it was apparent that she would be the heir, but there was still a possibility that she could have a younger brother come along to be the true heir. But in the the heir in that sense, when it's a firstborn son or the firstborn son is the heir presumptive because then it's presumed that he would be the heir because there's there wouldn't be anyone in front of him in the line of succession, nor could there be. That's crazy. Um, that's... It is, and that's a rule that they actually just repealed before the birth of Prince George, I believe. Oh, that's right, because they didn't know the sex of the baby, and they said, you know what, it doesn't matter. Right. We're, I don't remember when he was born, 2015? No, 2014? How old is he? Yeah, something like that. I think 2014. Yeah, either way, they were like, this I mean, is that's stupid. crazy recent for that kind of rule to be put in place. But I think it wasn't necessarily something that you know, maybe the British royal family didn't think that a girl should be on the throne. I mean, obviously they were being ruled by a woman, but I think it was just like the question hadn't come up, right? Because Elizabeth had Charles first and then Diana had two sons. So there was never a question of um, heir presumptive versus heir apparent. It wasn't, it wasn't until, until there was a possibility of a girl that they just thought, let's do away with this. Um, right. It's it's an interesting concept, and so obviously at a certain point, it became obvious that uh, there weren't going to be any little boys coming along. So Elizabeth was trained. Um, she, you know, she didn't really receive what we would consider a formal education. I think she had private tutors. Um, and if you watch The Crown, they do a really good job of showing what that was like. Um, they tutored her in constitutional law um so that she could understand her role but they didn't teach her math they didn't teach her much of history um you know they didn't they didn't teach her reading and writing as we would understand it um she had a really singular education and i I don't think margaret received much of an education at all i think the same amount or the same amount minus the legal aspects but also i think margaret didn't show that much interest in education and no one really pushed her because why well, it was this they? idea that girls didn't need to know much beyond how to manage a home um there just wasn't this focus on education for women um and i think when you have a woman who's expected to take the throne the thought it was okay well we have to prepare her in some way but um we're not gonna we're not gonna teach her math we're we're not gonna teach her philosophy and polit like not politics but um what we maybe would consider social studies something like that you know it just really wasn't where the focus was um and she we do know that she has a pretty religious education she could apparently she she can quote the bible from memory she's a pretty religious woman i believe um which is fitting for the head of the church but um Anyway, my point is just that they, at a certain point, realized she was going to be queen and tried to prepare her as best they could. But in the constraints of the time, I think you and I might still consider her to be rather poorly educated. Um, 
but none of that really mattered because she did what every good girl did back then once you reach the age of 20 and you get married. So in 1947, Elizabeth married Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark. Um, he was a prince. Uh, he had no money to his name and I believe had been exiled from the country. So he really was just kind of bumming around Europe. Um, it was kind of a controversial choice because he didn't have any land, didn't have a penny to his name, and all of his sisters were married to Nazis, which, if you think of the timing, in 1947, nobody in England wants to be associated with Nazis. I think you mentioned this last time, they had even changed their name. Was that World War One where they changed their name? That was World War One. so those technically weren't Nazis, but... The, but still, still, the anti-German the idea sentiment that they was don't, there. Exactly. And I don't know, I don't remember why Philip and his family lived in Germany or if he, did they live in, or am I remembering, did they live in Belgium at some point? I'm not sure, but his, you're right, his sisters both married Nazis somehow. Um, I think they, they married, they weren't just Nazis, they were members of the German aristocracy, um, if not extended royal family. Well, it was, it was, they were, I think they were Nazis in the way that like everyone was a Nazi, right? Like that was the... The thing to do because otherwise you were exiled or killed so um you know I mean not to not to justify their going along with it in any way but I think people in Germany at that time everyone got a little bit swept up in this new government um this new way forward yeah it it's Right, like, I, I, it's not like, I don't think any of his sisters were, like, leading the charge, you know, with Hitler, but, you know, they were certainly high-ranking in the German uh, aristocracy or government. All that's or, to say, you know, he wasn't necessarily deemed the most suitable choice, but when it comes down to it, he was a prince, and therefore um, a decent match for a princess. So they did get married, and um, I think as part of the deal, he gave up his Greek and Danish titles um, I know he was already a British subject. Is that the same thing as being a British citizen? You know, let's that not I'm even, not let's sure. Let's not even touch the um, distinctions there because, again, we're yeah. not – I'm just going to say something really, really stupid. Um, but I know he became a British citizen and converted to Anglicanism because he was Greek Orthodox. So basically he did everything that was asked of him, and he became the Duke of Edinburgh. How do you say that? Edin- Edin- Edinburgh? 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 Ugh. Edinburgh. Edinburgh, okay. Edinburgh, I think. Yeah, it's very Scottish. I don't. So, I don't know. so they basically gave him a title. He he was not made prince consort. I think that was the title. Um, he didn't actually get the prince title until a few years into their marriage. Um, but at the time they got married, and they really just kind of lived the life of a um typical couple. Uh, who'd be in the Navy. He he was in the Royal Navy, and so um, they spent a lot of time in Malta. Well, he was assigned to Malta. Yeah, and they spent a lot of time there, um, although they, you know, they did also live at Clarence House in London, so they weren't your typical couple in the Navy, but um, mm-hmm. they lived a bit of the military family life for a time, and, and at the time, it wasn't expected you know, they had two children relatively quickly, Charles and Anne, but they kind of thought it would be a while before Elizabeth would take the throne. And so they did what you see, um, I think what you see William and Kate doing is the first few years of their marriage, they really took a step back and just focused on the family. And I think 
take that time to live a quote unquote normal life as much as you can without the pressures of working in this royal family, what it is now, because... Right. Well, I don't even think at that time, like Elizabeth was really fulfilling that many royal duties. Like, I think it was just her sole focus was, I want to be a wife and mother and have this. And they had, a, by all accounts, like a fairly normal life. I mean, I don't actually think that the children lived full time with them yeah, in Malta. So. I think um, I don't even think Elizabeth lived full time in Malta. I think she was there for months at a time. But I think they left the kids with their grandparents, with um, Elizabeth's parents um who I think were pretty doting grandparents but um she just wanted to be a wife and a mother and you know live that time out of kind of the scrutiny of the London eye of you know society and royal expectations and she was able to do that for a few years but um not as many as she expected it's interesting to kind of see the approach that she's taken with her grandson who will be king one day and and likely um, going to have quite a long reign like she did and you can kind of see the way that she hasn't really pressured them um, or at least in the beginning wasn't really pressuring them to be the forward face of the monarchy because one day that's all they're going to do and so it's kind of nice as a young family to be able to take a step back and I know um, it was probably pretty shocking when um, you know at the age of 28 I want to say how old was she she was born in she was born in 26 we said oh my gosh I'm so embarrassing myself yeah Elizabeth 1926 so 26 years old um was when she took the throne right 1952 I think she was 25 well she would have been okay yeah so she she would have been 26 um regardless of when exactly it happened um the King King George VI, his health had started to fail in 1951, so Elizabeth had started stepping up and taking over some of his duties. And what ended up actually happening is they had been on a um, tour of, I forget where they were going, but they were in, they they were were in, in Kenya. Kenya, and he died rather suddenly. And so, um, I, well, I say suddenly, I think maybe suddenly for the family, I think from what I'd read, um, they had already put plans in place in case he died while she was away. They had all of that. Well, they knew he was sick, so he had right. lung cancer. And I think they removed yeah, a lung. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, he. They, it's not like they didn't know he was sick, but I think either doctors didn't know a true prognosis. I mean, this was the 50s. You know, it's not unthinkable that they just really didn't know how to diagnose him correctly. And also... Or they didn't tell him or the family, like, the true extent. I mean, I think they should have been slightly more prepared. I, I just think it's a state of Give, denial. He was only 56 years old. Right. And so I right. I don't think anybody expected he would die that suddenly. Certainly not. I don't think Elizabeth expected she'd be taking the throne at 25. Um, and not while they're on tour in another country. And that was obviously cut short and they had to rush home. It's also kind of sad to think that she wasn't there, you know, when it happened. And then, right. and then not only yeah. that, you're mourning your father, you're, you haven't, you weren't there when he died. And then you're also, when you land back in your country, you're expected to re- assume this role. 
that you've never held before and that you're not quite sure you're prepared to have. So I think I think that was a pretty momentous way to take like, to take over. I always think about this fact, like, I mean, this family was really close, right? And so your father, whom you really love, has just died. And when you get off the plane after you've been away, you're not allowed to be falling mm-hmm. apart. When you come off the plane, you have to be put together and you know not only that but you have to be essentially royal because you are now the ruling monarch in the country and you can't you can't even appear to be a grieving daughter like you have to just be the queen at 25 i mean how awful yeah how awful and and i think that's one of the things where you talk about she prepared for that for her entire life and that probably gives you the ability to to look like it's easy but i'm sure it's it's not um, you know, and we talk about this all the time, but in the crown, they do a really good job of that where, um, they're putting her in her morning clothes and she's just trying to compose herself and you can already sort of see the demeanor changing as they're getting close. And she knows the minute she steps off that plane, um, she's stepping off at, as, as Queen Elizabeth and all the weight of that is with her at that moment. And she hasn't even seen her family yet and then you have that moment I thought this was done so well I mean who knows how it happened in real life but they get back to Buckingham Palace and you've got Queen Mary right the Mm -hmm. mother of George the sixth and the wife of George the fifth who has seen it all standing in the hallway and she she's the first one to curtsy to Elizabeth and it's crazy and, um, you mm-hmm. know, who knows how, how that really happened in real life, but I think the way that they depict that is so indicative of what that situation must well, have I been think it's like. A, I think it's, I, and I think it's a really good visual reminder of this whole bizarre situation that they find themselves in where not only are they a family, but they're also this hierarchy. And so you're grieving your father's death, you know, you want to be there like for your mother and your sister but you are now even outranking your right. grandmother in the term, you know, in the line of success. So it's, you know, you outrank your grandmother, your mother, your sister. It's like you come back and, you know, it's your family's in pain. But at the same time, like you are now ahead of this family. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, you just said it. She is the head of the family. She makes all the decisions. They have to run everything by her. Um, I think the the dynamics of that is kind of sick. Like, think about it. Like, your mother has been probably guiding you your entire life, and now you're at the point where she'd have to ask your permission to do anything major that affects the family. If she wanted to remarry, she probably would have had to ask for permission. If she – where she's going to live requires your permission. Um, same with her sister. Um, you know, M- Margaret was not permitted to marry the man that she wanted to marry, and that was because Elizabeth had to say no, and you can't even let your sister have the happiness that you want her to have because you you hold all the power and, and, and arguably don't necessarily really get to make the decision. Um, but your family is subject to your whims, and that's just got to be a real head head-turning dynamic. I... I I can't even put words into it because it just seems so sick when you actually take a step back and think about it. Um, yeah, this idea that, like, I mean, it's this old idea of being what being ahead of a family means of, like, 
full autonomy and not like, like you have all the power. No one has autonomy, right? Like you can argue that you have like a patriarch or a head of the family, but like normally in most families, you don't then have to ask that person for permission to live your life. But in this case they do. Also, I think it goes back to the fact that she was a woman, you know, think about the British society and that sort of primo, I can't say this word either, primogeniture. Is that how you say that word? Where the boys were the ones that would inherit. And so you know, I think in that society, it would have been fine if your if your husband dies and now your son's in charge because you've always had a man in charge. But I think when you don't have a son to take over and you're in the royal family and it, they get a little bit of a, I guess for lack of a better word, um, ex- exception to that rule, um, now your daughter is in charge and telling you what to do and 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 societally speaking it's I think probably hard to view a daughter with having the same authority as you would view a son and certainly not the same authority as what you would defer to your husband at that time so I think it's just for even for Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother it was probably quite an adjustment to be deferring to your daughter maybe maybe or maybe not though like maybe had she had a son that might have been the case but I think they always knew it was going to be the case that it was going to be Elizabeth so I think that was a little bit mitigated maybe within the family. I think it might be other people used to like, okay, now what does it mean to have a queen versus a king? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an um, interesting way. The power dynamics just seem to flip overnight. And um, I think in The Crown, they do a good job of showing Margaret's uh, chafing against that system because I don't think she was ever the type of person who was just going to roll over for her sister. And certainly not once she becomes queen. It's it's really difficult for her to fall in line. Um, so anyway, uh, 1953 is when she's officially crowned. So that's, that's um, it's interesting that they waited almost a year. Was that because they were in mourning or how does that work? No, I think it's just that they need time to get the whole um ceremony in place you know I mean there's so much that goes into it and I think um you know Philip really wanted to um televise it and they wanted to do all that stuff but I also think it was parliament decides kind of when the date is going to be and if if I remember there was just like I think they just wanted to like I think everybody was just kind of getting used to the idea I don't I don't really remember what the full reason was but I think Churchill asked for more time Mm. I think i Maybe I'm confusing reality with the crown. Yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm sure there were reasons. Um, it's just kind of interesting that they don't, I guess they wouldn't, you, you never know when it's going to happen. So it's hard to get the plans in place, um, kind of like ready to go. I mean, I know they do that for the funeral plans. London Bridge. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting concept. I mean, I'm sure they want to give them proper time to mourn and then you have to plan this massive event and you've got to do it right you can't make any mistakes so um it makes it it makes sense that they would wait that long it's just um kind of interesting because you've got this we talked about this a little bit this concept of the automatic transition of power but it doesn't really count until you've been crowned but it's not like she's not doing the job I mean like she hasn't oh, been sure crowned it's just and not there's official. no Right, there's no coronation, but she's still um, meeting with the prime minister and opening parliament and all that stuff. Right. 
it's 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 just kind of interesting to me. I just I I saw the discrepancy in those two dates, and it's you know over a year, and it's just kind of interesting. Um, but let's let's talk about Philip because you mentioned this a little bit, and he had a big role in planning the coronation. But um, as we were talking about before, you know they were just living this life of a married couple, typical married couple at that time period, at least to the extent possible. And then overnight, your wife becomes the Queen of England. And that means she's in charge of you. She outranks you. She is, you have to, you have to walk four steps behind her. I mean, she is the head of your family. It's I mean, that's, I think the biggest thing for a man at that time is like, and, and I think they tried to make it so that when it came to like their immediate family like Philip was considered the head of that like he made the decisions around the children and um you know decorating their homes like all that stuff all the domestic things mm-hmm. I think he was head of but like for all Which intents and purposes typical. no and for all intents and purposes like no Philip was not the head of his family yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting because you can see and they and we go back to the crown. But I actually yeah. I read a I read a book about them um as well and um and I, I don't have any of the information. I wish I had the author and it was anyway, it was a biography of Elizabeth and Philip and one of the things that they talked about was Philip was this um first of all, he was raised as royalty, not with any kind of means, but um he was still raised with a sense of some kind of importance. And then he marries Elizabeth knowing, knowing that one day she's going to be queen, but nobody expected it to happen so soon after they were married. So they had this kind of deal where he would be the typical head of household. He would make the decisions for the family. She would defer to him. Um, That was the, that was the way that they ran their relationship and then when she becomes queen, it, that's just not possible in all areas of their life. She she can't defer to him on matters of state. She can't defer to him, um, you know, when it came even down to what are they going to call their children? Um, he It just wasn't up to him. And I think for a man like Philip, who by all accounts is very physical, you know, he's he's the quote-unquote man, you know, he is, he's the epitome of what it meant to be a man back then and to to take a step back and allow your wife to step forward and be in charge. It's got to, it had to have been incredibly emasculating. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that's right, but obviously that's how they thought. It felt then. emasculating yeah. for him. And, 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 and the fact that he was decorating Clarence House and overseeing renovations, I mean, typically that would be considered woman's work. Um, but that's what he did because that's all those that was all the power he had, and um, you know you can see this. They talk about this in the Crown where he says, "I'm allowed to decide where the kids are going to school." So that was a big um, topic of contention later on. And and he said, "You know, you promised me I'd get I'd get to decide this." And so she essentially relinquished the reins in every area that she could to kind of make up for the fact that she was the most powerful woman in England. And that, that was nothing that they could change. And I, I think it's interesting though, is, is, is she didn't give him any power there when she maybe could have, you know, she didn't make him initially. Um, I think Prince consort, that was Albert's title, uh, Queen Victoria's husband. I forget what his exact title was. Do you know, is it Prince consort? 
I think so. But he, you know, Victoria gave Albert a lot of power. He he received a prince title. He would read her royal papers and advise her on what to do. And he would read her correspondence. And he would make, he made a lot of policy decisions behind the scenes. But what you see with Elizabeth is that's the one area where she says, no, no, this is, this well, is my job. That's an interesting parallel because, you know, Victoria and Albert versus Elizabeth and Philip, in some ways it is very similar. Like, you know, Victoria is giving Albert the authority to make changes around the household um, to, you know, I think a lot of people didn't agree with having this outsider come in and make changes. And I think um, that was kind of a, a block they ran into, but also Elizabeth kind of does the same thing with Philip, but not to the same degree. Like Victoria, I think, and, and maybe it's the difference of a hundred years, right? Like Victoria being a wife in, you know, 1840s or whatever, she's um, determined to make her husband feel more of an equal with her. So she does give him, essentially they co-ruled England until right. he died, you know? I mean, people didn't really know the extent of that, but they did. And um, Elizabeth isn't really willing to do that, I think. But I think some of that is like maybe her role models of watching her father on the throne. You know, she right. had a much more front row view than Victoria did to her predecessor. And I think the way she thought it worked and then the way it was understood that it would work was a little bit different. And and, you know, I think Elizabeth and Victoria, I mean, they're different women, right? They have different personalities. And I think Elizabeth is maybe a little bit more I mean, she definitely relished the idea of being a wife and um, being married to Philip, but she still is her own person in a way that she's going to assert and say, this isn't, like, you have married into this family, but you weren't born into this role. This is my role that I right. was born in to do. And so she's not showing him the contents of her boxes. She's not sharing her correspondence. She's not inviting him to meet with the prime minister. You know, it's... Um, he is still very much outside of the actual royal or the ruling that she's doing. It, it's just kind of interesting that she did draw that line. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think she tried to compromise where she could. But again, like you, you do mention this, you know, the, the more this institution continues, the less power it really, really has. And so, um, you know, Elizabeth... Elizabeth even had to make decisions that weren't necessarily the choices that she wanted to make, but that's those were the rules, and that's kind of what she was told to do by the prime minister and parliament. The family had we had mentioned the family changed their name to Windsor in World War One or thereabouts, um, and Philip Philip had taken the name Mountbatten, um, and I think it's a kind of interesting. Surnames are not really they're. Uh, they're kind of a strange concept, I think, in the in the royal family. Um, there's a name of their house, but it's um, they the names that they use in day to day life kind of tend to change with whatever titles that they have. But either way, they were using um, Windsor, and then Philip wanted his children to have his name, the surname that he has cho had chosen, as as would be customary in any other marriage. Um, but this is an instance where Parliament stepped in. And, you know, they kind of said, you can't, can't give the royal name or change the royal name for a, from a non-royal or non-English 
royal source, you know, and that's where you go back to the fact that Elizabeth was a woman, because typically speaking, if you had a king and he's the father and the kids are going to take his name and the royal name continues and nobody even bats an eye. But in this case, Elizabeth's name was Windsor and his name was Mountbatten and he wanted everybody, you know, Charles would be the first ruler in the house of Mountbatten. And, and, and that was kind of a a real sticking point. Um, I think they did. Which is really interesting if you think about it, because that is exactly what Victoria and Albert did. Right, right. And I don't know if maybe that's why, if maybe they were like, look, we took this German Well, it caused a lot of problems. We had to go change it and, and you know. Well, and it's interesting it's because work. Mountbatten itself was an anglicized name because the family also changed their name at the same time as the Windsors from Battenberg to Mountbatten because... Battenberg was too German, so they just anglicized it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that was going on all over the place and and they did they did eventually compromise. I think I think the compromise they eventually settled on was Mountbatten Windsor. Um although they do still are commonly referred to as the Windsors. Um mm-hmm. but that was the that was the compromise. So I believe the children or the issue of the marriage. So children grandchildren can use the name Mountbatten Windsor. But I'm not sure they all do. It's well, so they, it was unclear because there were questions when um Princess Anne got married, I think I don't remember if it was that she signed the wedding certificate as Mountbatten Windsor or just Windsor. I, I there was something where they were like, oh, okay. Like it wasn't what people thought it was gonna be. Yeah, I think they just play fast and loose with it, you know? Yeah. Um and you know William and Harry use the last name Wales, yeah, because their father is the Prince of Wales. Um, they just kind and of George uses Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting the way that they with the way that they do that. But the officially, I believe the family house name is Mountbatten Windsor, right? Um, when and how they choose to use that is kind of up to them, um, but was a big sticking point um you know and that again goes back to the emasculation of philip or the the supposed emasculation of philip it's just he can't even give his kids his last name which i think for a lot of men is just like the ultimate kick in the face um but i think that they really struggled with that probably for a long time and and in one you know you do wonder what would it have been like if she didn't take the throne until the 80s um, you know, had her father lived another 30 years, what would that have looked like? All those questions might have been settled before they had to be settled on such a public stage. Um, right, because a lot of this stuff is happening real time, right? Like if she had taken the throne 30 years later, you know, the kids are grown, you've already determined the idea of their surnames and, you know you can decide all of the questions of where do they go to school and all of this stuff without the added pressure of them being direct, you know, next in line to the throne or, you know, especially with the case with Charles, but they didn't do that. Like she takes the throne and I think her kids are like not even five years old, you know? So, um, you're doing this all in real time. Like, what does it mean to make these decisions as the queen of England? And also as your children are young and your marriage is young, and you haven't had time to work out these problems. Right, right. And yeah. you're doing it, you have to do it in as private a way as possible while still essentially doing it on the world stage. I mean, the pressure must be insane. 
I, I just can't imagine what those family d- dynamics really were like. You know, I think there's been a lot written and there's been a lot imagined, but um, it's what it was really like behind the scenes. You know, we'll never know. And I think you can imagine what it was like. And I, I imagine there were a lot of fights and there was a lot of cold shoulders. And, um, well, I mean, even look at Margaret, you know, Margaret um, s- suffered because her sister was queen. We've got, you know, the story of Peter Townsend, and they really go into this on The Crown, but she wanted to marry him, and he wasn't suitable. And I think Elizabeth would have been fine with it. But, um, you know, again, it goes back to this idea of uh, letting a divorced person into the royal family, and um, it was the whole reason why Edward gave up his throne. And so for a really long time, until arguably Charles and Camilla... The idea of letting somebody in who was divorced and letting them marry a high-ranking royal was just a, a, a complete non-starter. I mean, you just you couldn't go down that road. So Peter Townsend was divorced. He was also significantly older, and he was considered to be a completely unsuitable match. And so imagine that. You have to tell your sister, nope, you can't marry the man you love, I and, and you can't well, do it against my wishes. And if you want to do it, you've got to give up everything you've got to give up your title and the perks of your lifestyle and really arguably the only life you've ever known right and this is where the crown sort of dramatizes it to the at the expense of history where um you know margaret was allowed to marry him but with the caveat that she couldn't do it and remain royal which was just a because you know i think it's there i mean think of it as a family like you've just overcome this crisis of the king abdicating because of this issue. And then you must be thinking again, like, how is this happening again? Why, why are people, you know, I mean, and I think it just speaks to the increase in the prevalence of divorce, but it must be like, why is my family constantly trying to find people that are divorced? You know? Yeah. Um, It's it's just, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. But, Um, but they gave them the option, but they did separately decide that, you know, they were going to just separate and not get married. And and I do think a big part of that for Margaret was she wanted to stay royal. I mean, she, by all accounts, really enjoyed being a princess. So, I mean, I think she had the best of it. You know, she didn't have any real responsibilities, but she had all the perks. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about that is the way, <laughs> the way that that ends up. And, and I don't know if we'll do Princess Margaret, so I won't, I won't go too far into the details. But you know, in 1960, she married um, Anthony Armstrong Jones, and I, I don't think he was necessarily any more suitable <laughs> for her. He mm-hmm. was a society photographer, uh, artsy scene. Um, but he yeah. wasn't divorced. So. He wasn't divorced, yeah. But I think yeah. in in every other way, he was probably the worst person she could have married. And um, but I think that just—I mean, this is something we'll talk about later. But I think this is just this series of choices that were made based on this arbitrary principle of what was considered morally right or you know proper or appropriate. Where trying to go that route constantly gets your sister, your um, your children into situations that perhaps could have been avoided you know like I mean it's a very similar situation of when Charles was ready to get married to find someone appropriate find someone um suitable for the heir to the throne and that was not considered someone who was um experienced quote-unquote and um you know 
this whole idea of like Charles and Diana was like she was basically um considered a blank slate that you could I mean there was nothing in her background to like cause them any pause and so they said great she's perfect but not so much for Charles you know and I think a couple of her you know um I think once Anne got divorced and then Andrew and um you know and then Charles and Diana I think it just like there just became this reckoning of like perhaps it's not so much about propriety as it is about like containing the scandals of this family, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and and what comes out of unsuitable matches and perhaps suitability isn't so much on paper, but it also has to be, you know, in person. Cause I think there's also something, there was a shift in attitudes around marriage, right? Like it used to be this idea of like, well, this is who we think you should marry and you'll just make the best of it. But that's not really how it happened in the 20th century. So, no, I mean, you know, going back to Margaret, by 1978, she was divorced. And I think in yeah. 1978 versus 1968, that was a very different <laughs> concept. Uh, it wasn't, it yeah. wasn't going to be a societal ruiner. It was just kind of like, oh, well, that's unfortunate and we're kind of embarrassed about it, but we'll still let her come to dinner on Friday night. Um, well, and I think that becomes this thing of like you – can no longer have this rule against divorcees when half the family has now become divorced. So, right. Yeah. So, so just to kind of sum it all up, you know, we could, we could go into the weeds here, but um, I think you and I talked about the fact that, you know, it's not necessarily interesting for us and probably anybody listening to talk about the declaration of independence of Rhodesia or anything like that. Yeah. Um, You know, the fifties, sixties, seventies, were marked by a lot of change, I think, both on a personal level and um, an evolution in the Commonwealth, what it meant to be the Queen of England. You know, her father was the last emperor of India. And so when she took the throne, that wasn't uh, that wasn't part of the the British Empire was gone, essentially. Um, you know, post-World War II, it's a much more insular country. And, and in the 60s and 70s, they started the decolonization of um, Africa and the Caribbean, and they just really pared down the realm essentially. Um, and you know, they kept the they kept a lot of countries. And like we talked about last time, people voted to join. Um, I think it was kind of funny to point out that at one point France was considering it, which I think is just crazy considering the history of those two countries. But um, the point I'm getting at is, it was just the beginning of her reign came at a time when the world was really changing, um, and I think at the age of 25 to take the throne and to have to adapt personally to what that means to be a queen. And then also on the world stage, what does it mean to be a queen of England post-World War II? Um, you've got independence everywhere. You know, Africa is looking at their white oppressors and saying, you know what, we don't need you. It's fine. You can leave. You can go home. Um, even the countries like Canada, Australia, very independent. Um and you've got the birth of the or the beginnings of what eventually led to the EU. So I think this idea of this empire died with her father. And so what does that mean when she takes over? And um, we'll explore that a little bit more. But um, I just think the beginning of her rule was really just a time of upheaval for everybody. And um, she kind of charged forward and figured out what, what that was going to look like. Um, well, and I think... You know, maybe she more than any other monarch in British history was influenced by history as, you know, like, 
learning from what goes on. I mean, the times were definitely changing while she was on the throne, but also a big part of it was the world was changing. You know, I think everyone was both people uh, under the, the the rule of these empires and the people running these empires. I think everyone was a little bit disillusioned with empire. You know, it's um, hard to maintain and quell rebellions and, um, you know, it's far reaching. And when you've got problems at home, like what resources are you devoting to it? But I think it's really interesting where um, there had to be some sort of influence coming out of World War II where you have this massive war fought on a global scale over essentially one country trying to become an empire. Yes. And, and then you've got this whole Pacific theater because yet another country wants to become an empire. And you see what comes out of that attitude of like, we want to rule the world. And so I think as being in charge of the remnants of like the last great empire of the world you know it has to kind of color your attitude towards it of like looking at the consequences of overreaching and saying perhaps that's not the way and also you know having just come out of this massive war with being an ally with the U.S. and like you know that that had to be a big um history lesson right like this is what happens when you try to hold on to your subjects too tightly is like they rebel and become you know a whole other country and it's like so and it's a bloody war and it's expensive and you know maybe she learned some lessons that George III never considered um so I think this idea of you you know while your empire is quote-unquote crumbling around you but is it really crumbling like you can reach out for peaceful overtures and okay you're no longer the empress of India and you are um essentially overseeing a time of decolonization of Africa and your Caribbean territories are deciding to be independent and, you know, your um, sort of colonized areas like Canada and Australia, New Zealand, like are all asserting more independence as well. You can either go one way of that, which is, you know, the violent way, or you can say, okay, this is how it is. This is how it's changing. How do we shift this into something else. And I think this is what we talked about last time with the Commonwealth, right? Mm -hmm. um, just becoming a partnership of nations, which I think is something that like, you're, you're kind of scoffing at this idea of France wanting to join the Commonwealth, but it's not really that crazy when you look at it through the lens of, is it really the remnants of the British Empire or is it a new way of thinking of, of partnership of nations, right? Which and essentially that's what the EU became. Right, right. So yeah. France went that direction instead through the... Um, what was then the common market, but yeah. the Treaty um, of Rome, I read, I think it was. Right. Well, it started out as the EEC and then, or the, I think that was it. And then, and then morphed into the EU. But I think France was already deciding that there was something worth pursuing in this greater right. Right. idea of what it means to be part of the world than just empire. Um, it's just kind of interesting. You know, she was the first queen and, over a hundred years, if you count from the beginning of Victoria's reign, not the end. Um, mm. And and she was also the first British monarch to rule over a much smaller United Kingdom. Um, but I or, do think there is something to looking at what happened with Germany and with, um, you know, and even in World War One with, you know, the Ottomans and um, then looking at Japan and saying this is not the way. Right. Right. And and not that British and, Britain was ever in danger of like 
invading another country to hold onto a territory. Like, you know, I don't think anybody was looking to do that after. Right. I mean, they had million. they had their fair share of skirmishes, but um, right. Not on well, that I mean, they were they didn't give up everything without a fight. I mean, we haven't talked about the Suez Canal crisis, so no, no. So that's yeah. yeah. No, I just don't. I don't really want to. Like, I just don't. No, but feel I mean, like, like we're. I do think it's worth mentioning in that it's not that there weren't hiccups along the way. I mean, mm-hmm. there were. You know, I think it's a little bit easier to give up certain territories if you feel like you can afford to let them go. Right. But I think Egypt was a case of the Suez Canal is extremely strategic and vital to trade and um, also kind of having this foothold in the Middle East for oil and all of that, I think was a little bit of a different question, but they didn't come out looking good at the end of that. So, But you know why I'm not really interested in talking about that is that that wasn't anything that Queen Elizabeth decided to do. (laughs) No, no, she, she, but she just had to kind of deal with the public relations disaster. Yeah. She takes the public blame. She has to put yeah. her face out there when the country is humiliated. Um, but it's it's just not a function of her job to Mm-mm. decide whether or not to... But it is a it is a function of things that are happening under yes. her reign. Yes. Like, I mean, she's not controlling any of this, but, you know, and she wouldn't be able to decide, you know, of how they want to deal with, you know, the changing global landscape. I mean, she has no real say over that. Um, but to have that front row seat and and look at it, you know. I do realize I just made it sound like she was deciding, like, no, we're not going to invade. <laughs> yeah, no, no, <laughs> She no, has no, no. – I, <laughs> I, I hope I was clear what I was saying. But I, 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 do, I do feel like she has had a singular position um, in a way that her predecessors didn't. Yeah, I think like it's she's, – She's having to deal with the hard questions in a way that they didn't really have to, you know. Yeah, no, I and and I think she dealt with a world that just didn't exist before then, um, and so it's kind of interesting. And so we're going to talk about that next time. We're going to talk about the '80s and the '90s and the increased scrutiny and increased accessibility. And can you be a remote figurehead in a castle in a time when people demand more? They want FaceTime. They want to see you. They want to be able to criticize you. And they want answers. I think we see the first time the royal family having to answer for what they're doing, which is... Well, I think even by the end of the 70s, you see that, right? Where, you know, she celebrates her Silver Jubilee, her 25 years on the throne in 1977. And that 25 years, I mean, from the beginning of her reign to, you know, a quarter of a century into her reign, the the royal family is more public. They're more... um, they're more under scrutiny, under the press. You know, I think a lot of existing conventions around how the press treats the family had kind of begun to crumble at that time. They're more, they're held more accountable to the public. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I mean, you can argue whether that's good or bad, but it, and it also happened to coincide, I think, with a few more public scandals. Um, and, and I think it's people are starting to kind of look at the royal family with le- less sort of um, mystique, right? And more oh, these people are just humans in this interesting position. Yeah. Times is they're changing. But, but you could also argue that the royal family had a lot to do with that. I mean, starting with her coronation, where Philip is deciding we're going to put this on TV, this sacred, you know, yeah. for, for her, very sacred ceremony of, you know, for her, the, you were talking about she, was a, she is a pretty religious woman. The covenant she's making with God to rule this country 
I think she was a little bit taken aback that they would put that on TV for everyone to see. Um, but they did. I mean, they, some of it they still hid um, from the cameras. But, um, you know, they're opening that up to the world, not just your subjects. Like, everyone can see this. You're removing a little bit of the mystery around it. And that only goes, gets more so as she's, you know, doing her Christmas addresses on the radio and then she's doing them on TV. And as technology becomes more and more important and intrudes more and more, it's these walls that have existed for centuries um, start to crumble. And I think that's what's really interesting to me about the 80s and the 90s is um, sort of the consequences of that. But we will talk about that next time. We will get there. So thanks for listening if you're out there. This is Monarchast, and I think we were talking, yeah. we need a really cool sign-off, don't we? We're going to have to come up Please with one. Please don't say cheerio. Cheerio, darling. <laughs> no, that's all, that doesn't work. Um, yeah. That's, I just sound like an idiot. Um, but anyway, thanks for listening, and uh, we hope you like it. And if you have any ideas for who we should do next, let us know. I have some ideas. I'm sure you have some ideas. Yeah, um, at this point, you could... Leave us a comment on our Instagram, where Monarchast Pod or Monarchast Podcast. Or ooh, I should learn that. <laughs> we'll we'll put that on next, Monarchast next week's Pod. Royal is, oops. I think it's yeah, it's Monarchast Pod. I believe. Um, leave us a comment. Uh, and you know, if we're butchering history, let us know that as well. We certainly try not to, but um, yeah. Until then. Till then, cheerio, darling. No, no. <laughs> <laughs>